0: What does the Bible mean when it talks about the time of Jacob's trouble? Is that an end times event reserved only for Jewish people? Or does it now apply to all who are the Israel of God through faith in Jesus Christ? We know for sure of two comings of Christ. Once as the man Jesus, and again at the end of time when he comes back for us all. But is there a third time that Jesus comes to us? And if so, did he tell us about it? I want to know.
1: each and every one of you to this episode of the Doctrine of Christ with myself and Brother Jimmy Cooper. Whether you know it or not, the Doctrine of Christ is the most important thing in your life. In the episode this evening, we're going to entitle it The Time of Jacob's Trouble. And we're going to be going to a prophetic text in the book of Jeremiah. And we're going to be going to the doctrine of Christ, and we're going to be drawing out the truth and the life from this text, applying it to ourselves, and reaping tremendous benefits from it. Let's go to our text in Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. And we're going to be going to a text in the Gospel of Mark chapter 14 and we're going to be looking at a snapshot in time in the life of Christ. And it's going to be an amazing point in time that was spoken of by Christ as the hour of Satan and the time of darkness. And it's the time when the father removed the protection from his son to the extent where sinful men actually laid hands upon the son of God. And it's a disturbing thing when someone just comes in and just physically lays hold of you and would just drag you out of your chair and throw you down and overpower you. And it's a overwhelming feeling And I think we've all probably had that at some point in time. But let's read the text in Mark chapter 14, verses 41 and 42. And he cometh the third time and saith unto them, sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. And we'll draw your attention to the word hour. This is a specific moment in time. And. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. And we're going to be going to the Gospel of John. And we're going to be taking this snapshot in time. And we're going to see what was going on right before this. And it's going to take on a completely new meaning in them and not just new, but it's going to be an in-depth look that's going to connect, connect dots like never before. And in Gethsemane, as Christ was praying and after he said this rise, let us go up. The, the mob appeared Judas betrayed him with the kiss and the son of man, had sinful hands laid upon him. And in verse 43 it says, "And immediately while he yet spake cometh Judas one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. and he that betrayeth him had given him them a token, saying, whomsoever I shall kiss that same as he take him and lead him away." safely and as soon as he was come he goeth straightway to him and saith master master and kissed him and they laid their hands on him and took him now in the gospel of John chapter 8 there were many instances several of which we see in the scripture where the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews they thought they had Jesus cornered But he would just pass through their midst, and they weren't able to touch him. And then there was this time that's described as the hour of Satan and the power of darkness. And in this specific time, that protective hand was lifted, and Satan had his time, so he thought. But in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 58 and 59, here was such a time— Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. They couldn't touch him. But now this was different, and it was all a part of the plan. Now, in Luke chapter 22... And verse 53, here is another text concerning the hour and what it means. And we're going to be taking this and we're going to be applying it to our life. Um, if this happened to Jesus, it's quite likely that this will happen to us also. That, And you know, when you study scripture, we see God protecting his remnant. And we also have text that said the little horn made war against the saints and prevailed. It's both there. And that's because it's both going to happen. And we're going to have the supernatural protection and knowing of God until he's ready for us to go to the way of the master. And in Luke 22 and 53, this is the way the text puts it in the Gospel of Luke. When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness, a specific hour of Satan when his power was able to prevail to a greater extent than ever before. And let's go to the gospel of John in the 14th chapter. And in the gospel of John, this moment is expanded. Not only do we see the very point in time when Jesus said, arise, let us go, but we see what Jesus was teaching, what he was saying, and what was happening right up to this moment. And it's so important because this will tell us the way that Jesus dealt with this hour. And of course, that tells us how we deal with it. And in John chapter 14, Let's look at verses 30 and 31, and this will bring us to this same moment in time that we read in the Gospel of Mark. It says here, hereafter, I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh, and he hath nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do arise let us go against. And this is the precise moment that we saw in Mark's gospel in, uh, his account, Gethsemane arise, let us go right here. We are here in John's gospel. We're, we're going to look here what he was teaching. And, um, of course this didn't take him by surprise. He knew what was going to happen and, uh, the words. And of course the things that he taught here, um, It it wasn't for his own benefit. Of course, it's for our benefit and for the benefit of the disciples, all of them, with the exception of John going the way of martyrdom and John suffering, being boiled in oil, imprisoned and uh, all of that. So this has tremendous impact for them and it has for us because we're coming into that time of Jacob's trouble and we're going to be taking that text and connecting it with this hour And with the prophetic hour that's spoken of throughout scripture, that is a precise moment in time. And it might be a different time for you than for me. But in this time of Jacob's trouble that's approaching, many of his followers are going to be in this very situation. I want to read a comment from D.A. Carson's commentary in the book of John. He had a really good comment on that which Christ said that, of uh, You know, this is the they are darkness, but the prince of this world cometh, but he doesn't have any part in me. No part in me. And Brother Carson said, he has no hold on me is an idiomatic rendering of he has nothing in me. Recalling a Hebrew idiom frequently used in legal context. He has no claim on me. He has nothing over me. How could he? Jesus is not of this world, and he has never sinned. The devil could could have a hold on Jesus only if there were a justifiable charge against Jesus. Got nothing in me. We might ask ourselves, what's He got on us? What's he got on you? Uh, what's in your heart? Uh, so you know it's so important that we can say, you know, he's coming, but he ain't got nothing on me. I got a clear heart. I got clean hands. You know, we're ready for this. And this type of situation can only be met in that manner and in that fashion. Because when we coming into something this serious and Satan has something on us, we're obviously not going to come out of the situation in a uh, very good shape. And in that context, there's a scripture that is so good. Of course they all are. I said about all of them, don't I? but in Romans chapter eight and one, and this is one that is so maligned and misused, but it is so good. And so right. There is therefore now no condemnation to them, which are in Christ Jesus who walked not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And whatever has been the case with our failures and shortcomings, we need to wash them in the blood, and get in the spirit and out of the flesh, that we can say, with Jesus, the Prince of this world's coming, but he ain't got anything on me, nothing here, you know. He ain't gonna find no legal right to flip me on my head, and uh, we don't live up to this by works. But we come to this by grace through faith. And uh, this is such an important thing for us to understand. We have to enter this time with the evil one having nothing on us. And he is referred to. uh, There's the text in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2 where Satan is referred to. As the prince of the power of the air, wherein in time past, he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And the only way that we will be able to be in the place where we can truly say he has nothing on me is to be children of obedience and not of disobedience. And this is just all too obvious, isn't it? So these are just some very um, basic parameters. And let's get into the text in John 14, and let's look at this moment in time that was so crucial when Christ knew that not only would he face this situation where sinful hands would be laid on him, but that those that followed him and knew the most of him and what he said, they too, you know, they were going to go through this very situation. Now, let's look at John chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. And we're going to be understanding three different comings of Christ, which is perhaps a way that most have never thought of it, but it's going to really help us in our understanding of this. And in John chapter 14, verses 18 and following, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you yet a little while and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me because I lived. Ye shall live also at that day. Ye shall know that I am in my father and ye in me. And I in you. Now, what day is he talking about? He's talking about the day that he comes to us. Now, we're going to have to rethink as we do every episode what the meanings of these texts really mean. And I have a statement here by a British scholar. C.H. Dodd, he wrote back in the 60s. He was a professor at Cambridge, and the book I'm reading from here is The Interpretation of the Fourth Gospel with C.H. Dodd. He says something here that's worth the price of admission. This is what he says. By now, it is surely clear that the return of Christ is to be understood in a sense different from that of popular Christian eschatology. It means that after the death of Jesus and because of it, his followers will enter into union with him as their living Lord and through him with the father and so enter into eternal life. That is what he meant when he said, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you too may be. So there's a coming here. He says, I will come to you. And we have to understand that when he said, I will come to you, he doesn't mean at the end of the world. Yeah, he's coming at the end of the world. Yeah, he will return, resurrect the dead, last trumpet, all of that, new heavens, new earth. But this is something that we can't wait till then. You know, we're going to have to have a little help before then. So he says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Now, we have another coming here that we have to consider. And when we look at this, uh, I think this will help us in our understanding. Well, let's just go to the book of Acts chapter 1 and verse 11, and let's just make clear that we're not talking either or. We're not talking A or B. We're talking both A and B, and we're going to see both A, B, and C before we're done. But in Acts chapter 1 and verse 11, the text says, Which also said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. You saw him go away visibly and physically, and he will visibly and physically return. The same guy, the same guy we read about here, coming back, not another guy, the same guy. And he'll come back just like he left. Visibly and physically. But yet, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. And you see, that's something we got to have before the end of the world. We can't wait for that. We're going to need a little help for then because that hour of darkness, you see, that's going to come to us also. And there's another coming of Christ that's described here in the gospel of John. And this will help us understand the other one. And let's go to John chapter 20 and verse 19 and the resurrection appearances of Christ are spoken of as a coming of Christ unto his disciples. So when we can see this, this will help us understand what he meant when he said I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Now, this is amazing. Let's look at John chapter 20 and and verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. He came to them, he stood in their midst, and he said, peace be unto you. Now, this is the consistent message we're going to hear. He spoke peace to them. And in the verse 26 and 27, we'll see he did it again. And the post-resurrection appearances were a coming unto the disciples and a coming unto them to bring them peace. And this was all a preparation for that hour of darkness that he knew that they were going to face. Now, look at it in verse 26 and verse 27. And, you know, we can get kind of weak and kind of frumpy and kind of discouraged. And there was another guy here that was in that situation in, in verse 26 of the 20th chapter of John. And after eight days, again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. He did it again. He come to them. Peace be unto you. Uh, and it says, then said he to Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach thither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless but believing and Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God, you see, and this coming of Christ unto us is to build our faith, to give us comfort and to give us peace. Now in the 14th chapter of John, Jesus expands on this and, uh, He helps us to understand that it's through the Holy Spirit that this is facilitated in um, the 14th chapter of John. Let's look at verses 15 through 17, and it brings it all into focus of the only way that children of God can have peace in each and every situation. And it always just comes back to his presence. In John chapter 14, beginning in verse 15, here again, we have that obedience thing. Uh, you're going to be a child of obedience or a child of disobedience. If ye love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. What a word to be applied to the Holy Ghost! He is our comfort and Christ describes specifically the manner by which he's going to comfort us that he may abide with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not neither knoweth him but ye know him for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you then the text we read i will not leave you comfortless and he, you know jesus said that day i come to you you're going to know I'm in the father and I'm in you and you're in me. You're going to understand the indwelling of God because it all comes down to the fact of Christ coming to you in a very profound way in the spirit that will comfort you and build your faith to the point where you can go through anything even martyrdom. And this was the specific point of this whole uh, exhortation on how to deal with the time of Jacob's trouble, which will be the hour of darkness and the power of Satan that will be unleashed on so many of his believers. um, I fear in the very near future. Now it really comes to a crescendo in verse 21 and uh, We've talked about this before, and we can't talk about it enough. It's of supreme importance. And, you know, we talk a lot about, uh, in the past, about entering into the third heaven, coming before the throne of grace. And a lot of times, that's just not as easy to do as we'd like it to be. But then there's the times when he can make it easy for us and he can come to us. And, you know, he's more than willing to do the heavy lifting. You know, when we're willing to come unto him and lay our burdens with him and just place our faith in him. You know, he'll do the heavy lifting for us. And this is what he said. And all he asked, just believe it. It's like that old song, trust and obey. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them. He it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him and will manifest myself unto him. This is his promise, that he will not leave us comfortless, that he will come to us with an overwhelming sense of his presence to where we're going to understand the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Yeah, Uh, I'm in my Father, He's in me, and uh, I'm in you, and uh, you're going to understand the indwelling of God. And when the Holy Spirit begins to reveal Christ unto you, you begin to understand the one essence of God and the three persons working in perfect unity to reveal the fullness of God to us. And This is our preparation course for dealing with the hour of darkness. And the result of that for us is peace. Look what he said in John chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. Now, just think of the moment in time when he said that. He would moments after saying this sinful men would lay hands on the sinless son of God and drag him off. This was his parting gift under the last time when he would be able to really just teach and talk to his disciples. Peace. I live, leave with you. When he appeared to them after the resurrection, he would stand, come to them, stand in their midst. Peace, peace. He did it repeatedly. And this is because he was preparing them. He was preparing them, and this is his promise to all of us. I won't leave you comfortless. I will come unto you. And he said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not just some kind of peace as a fuzzy concept, but the very specific peace that Christ had when he dealt with with the hour of Satan and the power of darkness, that peace is the peace that he wanted to lead with them. Mm. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Perhaps... Um, One, two, three minutes, we don't know, after he said this, the mob appeared in the garden. He felt the lips of Judas on his cheek and the hands of sinful men hauling him away and overpowering him physically.
0: I've often wondered, why why did Judas have to kiss him? Because they knew who he was. He didn't have to it's like he said, it's like Jesus said, you know, I've been in your synagogues. I've been right there. You could have grabbed me at any time, but it wasn't your time yet. So even though it was their time now, why did, I mean, they, they know him. So why didn't they just get Why did they, why did Judas have to even do any of that?
1: Well, the only thing I think of in that regard is that it was dark and he just wanted to make a positive ID to where the soldiers would make sure they'd get the right guy. the only thing I could think. And uh, it was a prearranged signal that when Judas kissed him that they took him. Yeah. So this was just the prearranged signal. And, you know, I don't know. There probably was some torches there. I don't know, but uh, I guess probably in the garden there at night, it would have been easy to, got on the wrong guy. And I guess they just wanted to make sure their evil plan went smoothly. Yeah. So it was just their prearranged signal of uh, their plan, their premeditative plan to take down the son of God. Yeah. And, um, they thought they win one, but really didn't work out that way. Did it, um, in John chapter 16 and verse 33, Jesus whooped it on him again in John sixteen thirty three. these things I have spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace peace is in him and in Christ is a phrase that the apostle Paul used hundreds of times in Christ and close derivatives of that And it means in union with, as the Apostle John said, abide in me, in Christ, in faith, in relationship, in union. And in Christ, we have peace. Outside of Christ, we have chaos. And this is what he was telling them. My peace I give unto you. And he goes on to say, here, I'll read this whole text in John 16, 33. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. He promised them, and he told them, in the world you're going to have tribulation. And there will one day be the great prophetic tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. But it does not matter. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. This is the message people need to hear. Um, I've got bad news for those of you that are waiting for the rapture bus. It's got four flat tires, and it's not going to be able to get you out of here. It just ain't going to be able to roll you away. And Jesus was very clear. You're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Have peace. I've overcome the world, you see. And people that are looking to escape tribulation, this is just an unrealistic, non-biblical mindset that's going to set people up for Satan to be able to throw them down and have his way with them in this hour of darkness and the power of Satan that's going to come. And um, it is truly going to come. And as we read these texts, um We have to realize that these comings that are talked about, we're we're not talking, yeah, he's going to come at the end of the world, but there's a coming unto us before that, that we should welcome and we should look for and enter into. And in John chapter 14, in this very familiar, beloved text, let not your heart And certainly this applies to the physical, visible return of Christ at the end of time, but it also has application to that coming unto His disciples before that. And I love this next verse: "And whither I go, ye know; and the way, ye know. You know the way. You know. You know. You know the way to where I'm going. And uh, we know the way." And uh, we know what this promise means. And this promise and this coming of Christ unto his disciples, this is the way that we receive his peace. He received peace from the Father, from the indwelling relationship he had with the Father, that enabled him to endure this hour of darkness. And that's the same way. My peace I give unto you, he said moments before he was taken away. The last, I guess we could say, um, official teaching while he was with them was right here. Let's read a text in the book of Psalms, chapter 50. And I want to introduce another brother to us here that we're going to read a few comments he made. We have the privilege of having some good believers that really loved the Lord and knew him. And when you read them, you know that they knew him. You know, they're not just peeling off a bunch of intellectual garbage, you know, but they knew him. And they're speaking from a heart of faith. And um, the fellow I'm speaking of, we're going to look at is Ian Bounds, and Ian e. Bounds was a, wrote on prayer, and that was the main thing he wrote and taught on was prayer. He was a man of prayer. And in Psalm chapter 50 and verse 15, and call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. And... There was a statement he made in the book I have here. It's called The Complete Works of Ian Bounds on Prayer. And I mean, it's got a lot of good stuff in it. It would be a worthwhile volume for anyone's library and some really, really good things about prayer. And we're just going to read two or three of his statements here. But this is what he said on page 53. He said, The day of trouble dawns on everyone at some time in his life. The evil days come and the years draw nigh when the heart feels its heavy pressure. That is an entirely false view of life and shows supreme ignorance that expects nothing but sunshine and looks only for ease, pleasure, and flowers. It is this class who are so sadly disappointed and surprised when trouble breaks into their lives. These are the ones who know not God, who know nothing of his disciplinary teachings with his people and who are prayerless. And how much we have talked in several episodes concerning primarily the word of faith doctrine. And how it has set people up for a fall. The faith of God would be an example. And there are many episodes where we've talked about the poison of this mindset and this philosophy. And it has inculcated in the minds of millions the idea that if we are just... Uh, and even have come so far to say that if a Christian suffers that he is out of the will of God. They have even gone that far. Mm -hmm. But how true are these words that this is just an absolute setup? And to begin with, and in these texts we've seen what Christ said concerning tribulation and the reason why he was teaching them how to have peace and giving his peace into them was in their personal preparation for the time of Jacob's trouble that would soon be coming to them, but they would be delivered out of it. In um, a text in Matthew chapter six and verse thirty-four, um, another text that's good in this context. That's right after that. Seeky
0: first verse, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's right. After that, the very next one, um, Matthew six and thirty-four. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil there of. And uh, another comment here by Brother Bounds. He said this. Of course, it may be conceded that some troubles are really imaginary. They have no existence other than in the mind. Now, have we ever done that and we've started worrying about stuff that it's not reality? It hasn't anything that's really transpired. And this is what Jesus meant when he said sufficient. of." are the, the evil of today is sufficient for us to focus on in so many words. He says, some are anticipated troubles which never arrive at our door. And I've caught myself worrying about things that might not even happen. You know, what I got to deal with right now today, that's plenty for me to focus on and pray about without. Speculating. Now, we don't want to be naive, just like in this text. You know, we want to be prepared, having the peace of Christ in any situation, but we don't want to gin up imaginary situations in our mind to worry about. Fear is the devil's playground, he loves to keep us in the unknown. Yeah. Fear is the devil's playground, Sister Donna says. He likes to keep us in the realm of the unknown. And, you know, and fear is the opposite of peace, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it really brings it down to to focus here, doesn't it? He goes on to say um, others are past troubles and there is much folly in worrying over them. You know,
0: yeah, can't do anything about them.
1: Not going to change it day the evil of the day that's what we need to focus on that's what the doctor Christ tells us
0: I've never understood that verse like that that's good yeah I mean that last line
1: yeah present troubles are the ones requiring attention and demanding prayer and whenever Satan can get us worrying about what happened in the past or worrying about what might happen in the future what we have to pray about right now today doesn't get prayed about yeah. and dealt with, you see? Yeah. And, and we slip out of faith and peace into, ah, you know, and we, we, we just can't allow ourselves to do it. We got to focus. We got to focus. And he goes on to say, um, present troubles are the ones requiring attention and demanding prayer. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, quoting Matthew 6 and 34. Some troubles are self-originated. Oh, can we all say amen to that? Some troubles are self-originated. We are their authors. Some of these originate involuntarily with us. Some arise from our ignorance and some from our carelessness, all this can be readily admitted without breaking the force of the statement that they are the subjects of prayer and should drive us to prayer. Now, isn't that great? That is. Even though our trouble, we've authored it. <laughs> we've authored it. Man. Through ignorance, carelessness, whatever. But that doesn't change the fact that it can be a matter of prayer. Yeah. And that we can take it to the master.
0: But you know what? Like, you're right. Like, for me, I'd say 99% of all my troubles are self inflicted, (laughs) you know? So. But for me, and maybe other people feel this way, maybe sometimes the reason we don't pray about some of it is because we feel like it's my fault. I deserve whatever's going on. I created this mess. I don't even deserve to pray about it. I mean, I felt that way before.
1: I think that's a huge point. I think it is. And that's why that statement he made is so precious that even when we've authored it, you know, that's when we need to make it a matter of prayer. Oh, yeah. And we have every right to because he understands, um,
0: As you know, part of that he, lifestyle of repentance. Right. Sure.
1: And, you know, we've dealt with that, that whole attitude. We've talked about Christian perfection. Um, these are concepts that are so many that are precepts and the doctrine of Christ that weave a beautiful tapestry that give us an understanding of the master and his love and his concern for us. And he wants to give us his peace, his peace that he had from the indwelling relationship with father, my peace, I give unto you. That's a gift that we should receive with open arms. And We can never, on our best day, we can't be good enough for that. No, It's got to come by grace through faith. And that's how it all comes to us. We can't be good enough for any of it. It's all coming through the cross. It's all coming by grace through faith. And his peace is coming at us. And more than that, he's coming at us. You know, he will come to us. He won't leave us comfortless. He will come to us. And the Holy Spirit, will teach us, and in that day we'll understand how he's in the Father, that the the Father's in him and he's in us. We'll understand it because the Holy Spirit is going to teach us that relationship.
0: Not, not to throw you too big of a curveball, but what does that scripture, though, mean when Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword?
1: Well, he goes on to say, I come to set the mother-in-law against the father in all the different family relationships you're going to be in turmoil. And it's just simply this, that I don't think there's any family that everyone has chosen to serve Christ. Right. And whenever you have someone, um, uh, and in a, a situation where the husband or the wife wants to serve him, the other partner don't, man, it's going to be a sword. Yeah. And Jesus says, um, You know, he's either Lord of all, uh, and it's a cliche, but it's a good one. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And uh, we can't compromise Christ for our brother, sister, mother, father. We want to do everything we can to have a good relationship as we can with people. But deciding for Christ, that'll bring a sword. And that's exactly what he meant. Yeah, And um, and even in the time when we have the conflict that come, and this is the sword coming right here, um, you know, it's not that we're trying to be insurrectionary or any of that, but it's going to happen because when we stand for what he said we should stand for, the world's going to hate us. He told us that, you know, the world's going to hate you. Uh, they hated me. It'll hate you too. Uh, You're going to have tribulation. He told us all these things, but then said, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth goodbye unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. I won't leave you comfortless. I'll come to you. And this is that impartation of peace that will be so overwhelming. You know, poor little Thomas, you know, he just uh, having a real faith crisis until Christ came unto him, said, go on, put your, put your little hand right here and put them right in the nail prints. And that fixed him right up. It and, did.
0: Didn't Thomas go on to do great things? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it. What part of the world did he go and start the gospel in? I forgot. India. India. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, uh, there were many reports of, uh, Thomas going all the way to India. And taking it to uh, the gospel out. So, you know, the one thing that can't be denied about the original apostles and thousands of believers that followed, they had the faith that give them the ability to endure martyrdom. As it says in the scriptures, they loved not their lives, even unto the death. And it was because that they had that over sense of his presence. And, you know, it's by faith. And this is why we need to teach this so that people can receive the things of the spirit of God, because this is the time where um, people don't need to hear about the rapture bus because it's tars are all flat. They need to hear the words of Christ. Mm hmm. You'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I will overcome the world. My peace I give unto you. That's what we need to teach people, that these are legitimate blessings of the Spirit that Christ wants to give to each and every one of his children. And he He will give them, and readily so, because he wants us to be victorious, even under the point, of persecution and martyrdom. Another blessed text, and a very familiar one, is in Romans eight twenty eight. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called, according to his purpose. And of course, doesn't say everything's going to be good but it's all going to work to her good. And we all have to remind ourselves of that from time to time. Mm-hmm. And another just tremendous statement. And you know, this guy is kind of like when you read Thomas Watson, there's so many things that are just little gems. It's just hard to take them all in. Yep. Another little statement he makes here. This is just worth the price of admission. He said, prayer opens the eyes of, To see God's hand in trouble. Prayer. Opens the eyes. To see God's hand in trouble. And whenever we're going through. A mess. At the hands of. um, Evil men. Or at the hands of our own carelessness. Prayer. Will help us to see God's hand in that. How he is going to work it all out for our good.
0: Let me let me ask you a question. When you say prayer, you know, it does all these things. Does that just engulf all of your talks with God or is that or are you are you and this guy referring to like a dedicated time each day where you just spend just totally just in prayer? Cuz I've said this before, I talk to God all day long throughout my day, whatever I'm doing. But, you know, I I probably don't, like my time, my time with God in the mornings before I start my day is usually just in the Word or studying. And, and I'll just, again, I'll just talk to God off and on through that. But, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm still thinking that I'm wondering, I'm wondering about You know, I I think I need to add more of that other time where it's just prayer and I'm not just talking to God while I'm doing other stuff.
1: Yeah, I think that's another great point. And we're talking about more than, and of course, you know, believers are, you know, we're thinking and praying, meditating on ourselves. All throughout the day, prayer, pray without ceasing, Paul mm-hmm. said, but yet prayer and meditation, both are more than that. It takes the setting apart of a time and trouble, you know, trouble. And, you know, we've had some trouble here lately Yeah, uh, with all of the, the hacks uh, and losing our YouTube channel. It's been trouble. It's been worrisome and it'll cause you to pray more. It yeah. really will. Yeah. And I know um, the day that it hit on a Friday, uh, just last Friday, and I mean, it was a gut punch. And, you know, it would just come one after another. It was like a whirlwind, which we've talked about the whirlwind to the enemy's attack. But, you know, God alone slowed down and prayed, and it was all good. You know, I was ready to go another round with the evil one and, um, I will, you know, and I don't say it boastfully, but it's because I have received of his peace in this situation. And, uh, that's something the world can't take away from you.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And we receive his peace and he comes to us. We can be on that solid rock that is truly unshakable. And Of all things, I think this is what scares the evil one the most, that even the humblest of God's saints cannot be intimidated and swerved from the master by all of their power and threats and intimidations. Um, They can't move us, and uh, that's what he can't stand. And this is what lets him know that he's going to go down. And when the, the Lord returns... You know, he's going to go into the lake of fire and that's going to be the beginning of a big nightmare for the evil one. So that's that's how this is coming down. You know, it's coming down to uh, the entering in of this prophetic time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be delivered out of it. The text in Jeremiah says just like and this is how Christ was delivered out of it by receiving the peace of the Father. And this is how Daniel was delivered out of it. And Daniel wasn't kept out of the lion's den, but he was delivered out of it while he was in the lion's den. The same with the three Hebrew children. It didn't keep them from going into the furnace, but it preserved them in it.
0: even, Even Psalm 23 says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, so it's, it that gives off the impression that I'm going through it.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's that old chorus: "I'm going through, I'm going through," and um, that's the attitude that we have to recapture and the mindset and so much of the modern day teaching it doesn't prepare us for this, but it sets us up for the fall and it sets us up for the evil one. Uh, it unprepares us instead of prepares us. And just like the one statement by Ian e. Bounds, you know, I mean, this is just a totally unbiblical worldview mm-hmm. and uh, unrealistic. And uh, whenever you have um, your disappointments will be directly related to your expectations every time. And when we have unrealistic expectations, we're always going to be disappointed. And then, just like in our lesson on the faith of God, we'll turn into squally little brats that want to blame God for everything, you know. And this is just not the true faith of God. We have to come back to faith in God, the faith of God, and this is the peace of God, which is the peace Christ obtained by faith and that relationship with the Father, you say. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what he wants to give unto us. And that's what we want to receive from him.
0: Uh, what about the people who are going to say, well, Jacob's trouble is is something the Jews go through, and that's something for Jewish people? Well,
1: this is just another one of the deceptions of bad doctrine. And when we understand that, um, and I'll let's just read the text again um, of what Paul taught in Romans chapter two. And it's a matter of understanding who Israel is. And not all Israel was of Israel before the cross or after. Mm-hmm. And in Romans chapter two, and Verse 28, for he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Now, there's just a statement to meditate on a while. If we want to believe the Bible, he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. And you can be um, 100% Jewish genetics. Um, You can have all of that, but You are not a Jew in the sight of God because the new covenant is with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And the only way you can be a part of that is by faith in Christ. So genetic Jewishness doesn't make you a Jew in the sight of God in the in the definition of being one of God's chosen people, for he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men, but of God. And when people read that text, the time of Jacob's trouble, who are the Jews now? It's not physical Israel, and this is falling back, and we've talked about this so much, and we have to keep talking about it because this is another one of the mindsets of dispensationalism that's totally setting people up for deception. And right here, you'll never get that text with a dispensational mindset. You know, you're going to be thinking, you know, physical Jew. Well, those physical Jews aren't Jews anymore. We are the Jews. We're the Israel of God.
0: Yeah, I've heard people always say that the time of Jacob's trouble was uh, Jewish people during the Great Tribulation after the church has been raptured out and they're in that seven-year period or that three-and-a-half-year period.
1: There you go. And I mean, there's so much wrong. There's about, in that one statement you made, there's so many errors that are (laughs) compounded, you see. And these... uh, you know, it's John Darby's Sky Castle, and it's, you know, truth is built precept upon precept and line upon line, and this is built lie upon lie and lie upon lie. It's a sky castle of uh, stuff, and when you get people to realize, you know, well, the, this is not in the Bible, it's these statements are totally against what Christ said. Mm-hmm. and there will be many, and many have, I mean, so many people have woken up to the pre-tribulational rapture lie, and for me, I got that before I got a lot of the rest of it. I realized, you know, this just isn't right biblically, and it took me a while to realize that there was a whole lot more wrong than just the timing of the rapture, and as time went on, man, they're just uh, this is not just one error, it's a it's, a, it's an onion that has to be peeled. Uh, there's layers of deception here. Lie upon lie upon lie. And this is the sad state that um, people are in in America. They have been taught so many lies that the faith that um, many of them have is not a faith God can even honor. And uh, this was the whole subject of our faith in God, uh, DOC. So we just got to come back to Jesus. And for so many, excuse me, for so many people that have been in the American evangelical church, this is going to be a radical, uh, repentance because we're going to have to either believe man or believe Christ. But even though it's difficult, you know, this is not an excuse. We are going to be held accountable. We can read what Jesus said. And when we choose to reject that, and go with something else, there will be a payday for it yeah. and a, a some very serious paydays. You know? yeah. Now, let's put a little prophetic crescendo on this and let's look at uh, we began with the text in. Jeremiah, the time of Jacob's trouble, we've seen the hour and the power of darkness. And Scripture speak of this time prophetically, coming on believers all over the world. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, there's obedience. And of course, The doctrine of Christ here perfectly coincides. If ye love me, keep my commandments. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation. There's the hour that will come upon all the world. Mm -hmm. I will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. And should we live until the time when Jesus returns, we'll all go through this. And The more I see things happening, the more I believe that it's quite possible and even likely that that be the case. And this is so important for us to understand that this hour is prophesied, that this hour is soon coming, and we need to learn the lesson here of receiving the peace of Christ through the indwelling relationship and his coming to us, I won't leave you comfortless, I will come to you. It's all right there.
0: Well, is this Revelation three ten? Is that is that kind of like when Jesus was telling them back in the in the garden? He said I think it's in Luke twenty-two, uh thirty-nine and forty. And well down in forty he goes, and when he was at the place, he said unto them, pray that ye enter not into temptation is this related at all because this yeah. was during that garden Gethsemane thing where yeah. where it, right before you know they came and got him
1: yeah this is an exact recapitulation you see Christ went through it in the garden and of course he is her pattern and he told them those very words pray that ye enter not into temptation. And then he said, My peace I live with you. The last thing he said, and they hauled him away. And this is exactly as he dealt with that, Revelation three is the prophecy that this hour is coming upon all believers. This is the time Jacob's trouble. But and see th- it,
0: but Jesus told them, Pray. Yeah. Pray. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the answer. And um was he saying, pray that you don't have to go through temptation or pray that uh, that you'll be able to enter temptation with that statement he made? Does that make sense? Uh,
1: and we're all going to have temptation, but we don't have to enter into it. And uh, when, just like the phrase that, he has nothing on me, that when he's got something on us, we'll be tempted and then we'll enter into it. We're not supposed to yield to it. Yeah, exactly, Sister Nana, we don't yield to it. So yeah, that that praying not to enter into temptation, we're going to all be tempted. But uh, as James says, uh, we're all tempted when our uh, count it all joy when you have diverse temptations. But in James that I didn't say that exactly right. Um, count
0: it, yeah, count it all joy.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, James chapter one, verse two. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. So, yeah, uh, we can count it joy when we fall into it. But that doesn't mean we enter into it in the sense that uh, we go through that door that Satan's soul opens for us. You see, yeah. when we allow Satan to have things on us, we open the door. And then Satan will have that door for us, but we don't have to go through it. You see, we don't have to enter into that door he opens. We can open the door and if we won't open the door, he'll open a door there for us, but we don't enter into it. But that doesn't mean we're not going to be
0: tempted to say. Yeah. And, and Jesus Jesus never opened those doors. That's another reason why um he said he has nothing on me. Nothing in yeah. me.
1: Yeah, he's coming. I know he's coming, but he ain't got anything on me. Yeah. We know he's coming. I mean, we know he's coming. Uh, this isn't gonna surprise us. We know that um, what the Bible says about what's ahead, but uh, we got peace anyway because yeah. we have learned the lesson of how he did it. When we see how he did it, we know how we're going to do it, and it's all through him. He's going to come to us and that's going to make it all okay. Um, a text Jesus said in uh, the doctrine of Christ in Luke 21 and 36 and Jesus said, Watch ye therefore, and pray always. So we watch and we pray that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. See, there's the rapture. There it is. <laughs> and when millions of believers that have been schooled in dispensational thought. That's what comes in their mind. Yeah. They don't want to think about Daniel escaping in the lion's den or the three Hebrew children escaping in the fiery furnace. They think of staying out of the lion's den of the fiery furnace. And like brother bound said, this is just a unrealistic expectation. That's going to be a setup Yeah, to turn us into little squally spoiled brats.
0: Well then, I I'd imagine some people when they start going through these things and they've they believe they're not going to be here for any of it, they're going to lose their faith because they're like, well, we've been lied to. Our whole none of this is even real, I guess, or maybe God's not real, or I you know they'll they'll have all kinds of different things they might think you know.
1: Yeah, their faith is resting in cliches and not the Word of God, and one of their favorites of the dispensational crowd. And they will throw this in the face of believers that will hold to the doctrine of Christ. And they'll say, we're not looking for Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. And they're taught, and emphatically and dogmatically so, by their rapture teachers, that it will be impossible for a born-again believer to look The beast of Revelation 13 in the eyes. So when this man does come upon the scene, one or two things will happen with these people. They will either not believe that it is him, that it's impossible, that the real beast could really be the beast. Mm -hmm. Or they'll realize that the beast and they'll think, well, I've missed the rapture. I'm not saved. They'll lose their faith. And it's a setup either way. Yeah. And the false doctrine has a terrible price to pay. Yeah. You know, people think it's like an intellectual game that, you know, we'll just believe this or believe that. But when we get away from the simplicity of Christ and, you know, we've done D.O.C.s about what Jesus clearly said, Matthew 24, 29, he's coming after the tribulation, the uh separation of the tares and the wheat in Matthew uh, 13, 39 and 40, that it's going to be the tares come out first. Gather ye first the tares, not the wheat. And people that maintain this pre-tribulation secret rapture, they are teaching things that are directly contrary to the doctrine of Christ in many places that we've enumerated. We've done entire episodes on this very aspect And whenever we go against the doctrine of Christ, there is a real price to be paid in our spiritual life. Mm -hmm. And this could be the ultimate price in this situation Mm -hmm. that many will lose their faith and totally apostatize. And it's such a sad thing. And it's not uh, like it's a one up. Oh, I know more than you do. I got it right. You got it wrong. It's a matter of of individuals rejecting what Christ clearly said to the damnation of their own souls. And there's nothing more serious than that. And what could be more arrogant than someone thinking that they know more about Jesus and that they know more about the correct teaching about his return than what he taught? I mean, that's the epitome of arrogance and stupidity. And people will pay a price for it. You know, uh, they'll pay a price, and it could be the ultimate price of damnation. And um, it's a, it's a scary thing. It's a it's this bizarre mind twist that dispensationalism has brainwashed people with to denigrate the doctrine of Christ and to replace it with the schemes of men. And truly. Truly, this is a serious, serious issue. So this is why over and over and over we just call people to come back to Jesus and believe what he said and receive that relationship and the peace and the comfort that only he can give. Um, He's the only one can do these things. Let's just read a couple more. Um, Just a couple more texts on peace to close out with. Um, Colossians 3.15. I love this
0: one. I do too.
1: And let. That means there's something you have to do to cooperate. Yeah. Here, yeah. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And, you know, that would mean that we probably better not focus on what. Went before, or not gin up imaginary scenarios of what could be, but let the evil of today be sufficient, like we read in the text in Matthew six thirty four, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be thankful, and that word rule. Probably the closest word we would have to that would be umpire. Let the peace be your umpire. Mm-hmm. And when you're in a situation and you lose your peace, you shouldn't go forward. And we can have the peace of God in any situation, even abject persecution. And whenever we are pursuing a certain direction in our life, whatever that might be, and we lose our peace and don't have peace, this is a sure indication that, you know, we need to stop and refocus. And a, a lot of times I know we'll be in a situation and we'll just have the peace of God leave us. And this is like a Holy Ghost alarm system yeah, where We don't know what's wrong, but he does and there's something wrong and we need to, you know, be on the lookout because that peace of God is our umpire. Let it rule and we will be led by the peace of God and uh, we can have the peace of God in any situation. And this is the lesson of the time of Jacob's trouble. Um, Isaiah 26 and three, and we'll close with this text, another great, great text. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. And in the understanding that we perhaps presented to many listeners for the first time that there's a coming of Christ unto the believer before the time of our death and before the physical end time coming, and that when our mind is stayed on him, this is a deliberate focus of faith upon Jesus in every expectation that he will come to us with an overwhelming sense of his presence that will impart His very peace that he received from the Father unto us. This is how we will be delivered out of the time of Jacob's trouble.
0: Thank you for watching this episode of The Doctrine of Christ. We pray it provided you with clarity and understanding. Make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Hit the notification bell so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Facebook. Leave a comment, ask a question. You can also email us comments and questions now at the Doctrine of Christ series at gmail.com. And until next time, may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be with you all.